Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. In addition to our courses on yoga, meditation, and personal development, Commune also offers an array of social impact courses, including Unwinding Prejudice, Redefining Leadership, and Organize a March. If you are interested in enrolling in any of those course offerings for free, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. Right now, we can all benefit from learning and growing in order to better serve our communities. Okay, so this week on the podcast, I am joined by Charles Eisenstein. For those of you who listen regularly to the podcast or read my weekly newsletter, you know that few modern thinkers have influenced me in the way I understand the world more than Charles. Charles is the author of numerous books, including The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible, The Ascent of Humanity, and Sacred Economics. More recently, Charles has written two extremely influential essays that have made their way extensively around the internet. The Coronation, uh, an in-depth look at our human response to the pandemic, and The Conspiracy Myth, an examination of the ground conditions that have given rise to the plethora of conspiracy theories that are gripping us across the political spectrum. Both these pieces are thorough investigations into the modern state of the human condition and should be read. He is also um, the author of a new course on Commune called Political Hope. On today's show, Charles and I discuss the spike in COVID cases in the United States, the inability of Americans to socially cohere, the undermining of the institutions of science and journalism, the arrogance of science and the need for humility, and our modern understanding of death. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. So thank you, Charles Eisenstein, for being on the podcast. Um, and I can say I'm not alone in my uh, appreciation for your thought, uh, your critical thinking, and your writing on the topic of COVID. And I'll just maybe set the stage for where we are today, globally, um, on July 2nd with um, with regards to the pandemic, um, which now has an estimated 10.7 million global cases, 2.7 million of which are in the United States, um, over a half a million total global reported deaths, uh, 128,000 of which are in the United States. And we are now currently experiencing, um, of course, if you believe mainstream news sources, uh, a spike 
in reported cases in the United States to the tune of about 40,000 new cases per day. Um, and we have seen other countries struggle, um, such as Brazil, Russia, India, the UK to some degree, uh, in controlling um, COVID. And then we've also seen some success stories um, in China to some degree, um, though there is some evidence of kind of new efflorescence of cases there, but certainly in many of the island nations, Iceland, New Zealand, Taiwan, also Ireland, Norway, and potentially the, the bigger success story in Germany. So uh, kind of with that set up, um, I'll, uh, I'll yield some of the, the balance of my time, you know, to you in terms of just, you know, where are we with this? And, um, and, you know, to what degree can you, um, why are some cultures and countries seem to be succeeding in managing this crisis and others are not? Well, that's quite a tempting invitation, Jeff, uh, to, uh, <laughs> to state my opinions uh, as if they were fact in answer to that question. Fair enough. Because, you know, like, and then, and then, you know, maybe people, people will believe me because of maybe the, um, how emphatically I state them and how much evidence that I can adduce to uh, support them. And then like you can listen to somebody else who has a different opinion and who also states it very compellingly and draws up his own evidence. Uh, so I'm a little bit, um, you know, what I'm describing is what I've been going through, looking at different sources who come to radically different conclusions based on actually not based on the same evidence. That's even a deeper part of the problem. It's not only that they disagree on their conclusions, they also disagree on what counts as valid evidence, uh, disagreeing on the provenance of the statistics, um, you know, and, and doubting their authenticity. Uh, and it gets all clouded by the phenomenon of narrative warfare, where if you are in service to a certain um, storyline uh, and and the results that that supports, then even if some data point comes along that's true, if it doesn't fit your narrative warfare, then you're going to ignore it or suppress it or uh, scrutinize it. Um, and, and and you know we see this happening all the time, which makes it hard to trust anybody. So as far as like these. Um, countries that you mentioned, that's part of the confusion for me. Like, I have not found any really good explanation why uh, you didn't even mention Japan, which is, you know, 100 and whatever, 120, 130 million people crammed onto uh, four little islands. Uh, and many parts of Japan are virtually uninhabited. I mean, the, you know, the greater Tokyo area has 36 million people. And you've seen, I don't know if you've been to Tokyo, but most people have seen the pictures. I mean, that it, it is crowded. 
and they didn't have lockdown. Uh, and their cases were very, very low. Like, why? And we kind of have this go-to explanation. Well, they were very successful in contact tracing and collectivist society, et cetera. People obey the rules and so forth. But, but that seems to be grasping at straws. Um, and so I don't think that we really have any idea what's going on here. Um, even without the confusing maelstrom of uh, data, uh, conflicting uh, sources of information. So right now, yeah, you talked about we have a spike. And some people I read are saying that that is an artifact of more extensive testing. You test more people. Of course, you can have a lot more, quote, cases. And I, I'm like, okay, is that actually true? And if it is true, then we shouldn't be seeing um, a lot more people in the hospital. So let me ask doctors that I know who are working in the trenches and, and, and look at what doctors are saying on Twitter feeds and stuff. And, you know, I'm seeing a lot of, uh, yeah, we just count, we test everybody. And if they come in for cancer or they come in for, for dialysis or come in for something else and they test positive for COVID, they are recorded as a COVID patient. Uh, it's a case of COVID. It gets fed into the national statistics. And we're not seeing actually very many people with real symptoms of this disease. And then I'm like, got a data point from another d doctor who's like, oh, yeah, we're at 90% capacity, you know, and, and this is real. Uh, I've, I've seen more of the former than the latter. I saw a graph from Florida where alongside the spiking cases is a plummeting number of fatalities. So, so and, and you mentioned at the beginning, at today's date, 128,000 in the U.S. have died from COVID. Uh, and like that hasn't gone up that much, actually. It's, it, there, there haven't been more people dying. So, so who knows? And maybe the, it'll, the deaths will spike soon, too. I don't know. Let me just say that I am deeply skeptical at this point and, and increasingly skeptical of the official narratives. And anyway, we, I could go on and on, uh, but maybe I'll pause for a moment here. Yeah, sure. I, and I do want to understand um, kind of what you see as the official narrative and the reasons for your, your skepticism. I do want to kind of unpack something that you um, that you mentioned around when you were talking about the example of of Japan, um, and, and this is a uh, you know something I've been trying to square, which is that there is a rise in some parts of the world of authoritarianism, and I think you know you've eloquently outlined how authoritarianism might express itself kind of in the world of COVID. So mask wearing, surveillance, lockdown, infringements of other civil liberties. Um, but what's curious to me is that the authoritarian leaders in the West, um, Trump, Putin, Bolsonaro, Johnson, to some degree. I don't know if you'd categorize Putin as the West. 
um, Modi, they they have been actually the champions of individual freedoms, actually, which is odd for me because you'd think, you know, these are kind of more of the authoritarian kind of chest-thumping leader types. Um, and it has been the more social liberal democracies that have successfully engaged their citizenry to kind of make sacrifices to mask wear, to sort of succumb to surveillance and, you know, certain infringements kind of in the name of the common good. Um, you know, I think of like our, uh, prime minister Ardern in, in New Zealand who, um, could hardly be considered an authoritarian, yet she seemed to be able to kind of get her citizenry in lockstep um, around kind of recognizing the common good over their own individual self-interest. And, and I wonder kind of what you see inside of there, if anything. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> um, one is this blurring or mixing up of left and right so that it's hard to distinguish who's left and who's right anymore. As you're saying, in, in traditionally, the right has been associated with authoritarianism and the left associated with defying authority, questioning authority, question everything. Uh, with uh, upholding civil liberties and protecting them from the uh, excesses of state power. And now we're seeing generally the people who are questioning the standard narrative of COVID, uh, which you asked me what that is. That's essentially that there's a uh, dangerous virus causing this disease that is going to kill millions or tens of millions of people if we don't quarantine and lock down. Um, at first it was until we can flatten the curve and then it became until we get a vaccine. It, it is generally the uh, left that is aligned with our um, scientific and medical authorities, at least that aspect of authority. And mostly of our political authorities too. Most, I mean, there are some exceptions, like Trump is definitely dragging his heels when it comes to uh, quarantines and lockdowns and stuff. But most of our governors and and uh, national leaders are going along with it at least. Even 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 the ones you mentioned, Trump, Bolsonaro, are um, not resisting too much. Uh, Modi, I think, is quite gung ho about uh, lockdowns and surveillance and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, but it, so there's this weird uh, reversal of left and right, and and. You know, it, 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 I think it's one one uh, source of it is that the left has traditionally been aligned with uh, science. Science, I mean, as an institution, as an establishment, because uh, originally science was opposed to the reactionary forces of religion. So science was progressive. It was the it was actually overturning authority not too many generations ago. It was science that was the challenger. It was science that was, um, uh, the. it was a progressive force. 
as opposed to to religion, which espoused conservative values, um, family values, so-called, uh, and obedience to authority. Uh, it was the social order. So there's still this legacy of left identity with science, uh, especially when um, it also seems to many that it is the denial of science or the failure to take it seriously, especially in the area of climate and ecology, that is leading us toward a down path of destruction. So this, I, I, and I think that it is not actually that apparent to those on the left that in fact, the authority of science as, as an established institution is inseparable from the rest of our systems of authority in, in this civilization that it is embedded within political authority. Um, it is intimately tied to economic financial power. Um, it is a central institution of our culture. And, and there's still this uh, illusion that it is impartial and apolitical. And in this um, altruistic pursuit of the truth, of the objective truth, which is why, and, and this this uh, belief about science is almost universal uh, to some degree in our culture, although now there are more and more defecting from it. But that's why both sides always seek to invoke science as being on their side, and the other side is not paying attention to the science. So what is the science? How do you as a layperson know what the science is, or even how do you as a scientist know what it is? Generally, you gain that knowledge by what you somebody is telling you the science is. Not You're not actually going into a lab and doing the science yourself. You have to take somebody's word for it. Either um, the uh, those who are in positions of authority or those who are questioning authority. So there you have it. And would you say the... I suppose the undermining of the institution of science um, and that sort of contributes to this post-fact or post-truth society fuels a, a lack of social cohesion, which is at the core of our inability to get our hands around this problem mm -hmm. and, and 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 maybe that's not the issue i mean maybe it's not about social cohesion but i think and and maybe perfect social cohesion wouldn't help us but my sense is that if we all kind of pretended that we were driving down the highway just going as fast as the car in front of us um, letting cars merge in regardless of their color and creed or, or whatever that, you know, that we were all kind of playing our part in the social contract that we would have, you know, sort of greater success. But because we cannot, uh, 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 let alone agree, but even agree on the facts, um, it, it seems like there's this kind of dystopia um which is prohibiting us from having you know thoughtful meaningful conversations 
you know, with a, around a shared goal. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I wonder what you attribute kind of the, this sort of undermining, um, of the belief in the institution of science. I mean, you know, certainly yeah. you can point out like, you know, big pharma sponsoring, you know, biased scientific studies for their own profiteering, but is there something kind of deeper, a deeper level than that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. I do think that, um, the, our dwindling, um, trust in science is part of the unraveling of our social cohesion. Um, we used to have a unifying story of what the world was and what progress was, uh, not just economic progress, but also intellectual progress. You know, we were, we were ascending toward uh, the complete understanding and mastery of the universe. In physics, it was called the theory of everything. And it looked like we were almost there, actually, even back in the 1940s or 1950s. So that, um, that unifying narrative has been breaking down, partly because of the reasons you mentioned, like the outward, the outright corruption of science, especially medical science. Uh, but I do think that there's something deeper afoot. Um, you mentioned post-truth post or post-fact. Um, and I think that, that we are also coming to question some of the metaphysical assumptions of science, which fundamentally is based on truth or fact uh, existing. Let me say fact, actually, rather than truth, existing objectively outside of ourselves. It's a metaphysical assumption that, that, that says that you can isolate variables that, uh, that, and, 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 isolate the effect of the experimenter on the experiment. You can, you can um, standardize experiments and therefore repeat experiments. That the reality that you interrogate does not change according to what questions you ask and what um, beliefs you hold about that reality. That reality is something separate from ourselves. So the, these um, tenets, uh, these axioms, I would even call them, um, have been coming into doubt, actually, for many reasons. Well, I mean, one is that they are questionable within quantum mechanics, which confirms <clears throat> a relationship between the observed and the observer. So even on a scientific level, this the, it has been decaying for almost 100 years, this, um, this trust that science is the expression of truth and the road to truth. And then I would also add that, and I don't, I don't think I'm alone, and I, I know I'm not alone here, that um, I've had many experiences <clears throat> in my life that science uh, it says is impossible, says, says are impossible, that, that, that could not have happened, that are not part of the reality that science narrates to us. And I know that many, many other people have had uh, mystical experiences, experience of healing, psychedelic experiences, uh, things that just, uh, or have had, had relationships with indigenous people who hold different worldviews um, that, that do not uh, correspond to the basic assumptions of science. And like, you know, you experience something like that, you, you 
you know, you go to a psychic who tells you something she, she could not possibly have known, very specific to your past, you know, not just, oh, your third chakra is not spinning, but something like absolutely detailed and accurate. Or you, um, you know, go to an acupuncturist and your lifelong menstrual cramps, is talking about a friend of mine that have resisted every treatment disappear after one session. Or, you know, we have so many experience or the UFO phenomenon, which we've been told is is a fantasy by um, by the the um, scientific consensus. Uh, I, I once wrote an article, I quoted some guy, uh, UFOs deserve as much study as Santa Claus. Um, he was an astronomer, you know, and now, and, and, and people were, were ridiculed as tin fat, tin hat wearing, tinfoil hat wearing cranks to, to be studying UFOs. And now all of a sudden, actually it's been a couple of years now, the Navy confesses that they've been monitoring UFOs all the time and that they are unexplainable and, and bringing out videos and testimony from trained observers. And like all of a sudden, something that has been out, out of bounds of reality is brought in. So right. no wonder our faith in science is wavering. Plus, if I can just continue my rant just for one little more minute. <laughs> Please. That the paradise, the utopia that science and its child's technology were supposed to bring us has not manifested. It has produced wonders. To, you know, a cell phone. I mean, that was science fiction a generation ago. Uh, we, we, it has produced wonders, but has it actually delivered us into a society of greater joy and less suffering? Absolutely not. So as a religion, as a dogma, uh, as a, a path for human betterment, it's lost some of the luster that it had in the 50s when this, with the hero scientist forging ahead into a brave new world where we would be free of disease and toil and and even on a social level the, the social engineers were going to construct society to eliminate poverty and and racism and um, psychological anguish and like none of this has come to pass so so it's not just science but it's the entire world story that embeds it that is uh, disintegrating i would say I think there there may be an argument to be had on the role of science and how it has been able to potentially tame epidemics, pandemics, famine, but but without and also potentially war. Um, you know, if you kind of subscribe to some sort of uh, kind of assured mutual destruction philosophy. Um, or kind of the global economy that's based around sort of scientific intellectual property that is so reliant on its on its on it that it may prohibit or or, um, or lessen the probability of going to war. But that notwithstanding, for a minute, I think that the point that you make around you know whether or not there is 
an objective truth to be had, whether or not you can separate humans' experience of something from its existence, like gravity or relativity, can those things exist without our ability to perceive them? You know, I don't know. I think that's open for a discussion. But as it pertains more to sociology and our ability to function cooperatively within society, we do require some form of intersubjective truth, I believe, um, in order to cohere. And what I have witnessed is sort of the, not necessarily the abandonment of the products of science, but almost the abandonment of its method to, to find some form of intersubjective truth. The notion of, you know, hypothesis, experiment, observation, deductive reasoning, you know, modification of hypothesis and then some form of thesis. We seem to have almost abandoned the rigor of that method kind of in exchange for kind of a very decentralized sense of intuition <laughs> that then from a media or journalistic perspective gets spread by individual vectors, celebrities, influencers, and that becomes our, our, um, our means for, for um, understanding the world. And that seems to me to be very concerning and potentially very dangerous. Yes. Um, it's, it is astonishing to me how um, ignorant and hostile to science um, some uh, very intelligent people can become. I'm in part of a group where there's a significant portion of the group. It's a chat group, you know, I've just, um, uh, a significant portion of the group believes that satellites are hoaxes and that the world, the earth is flat. And these are not, you know, ignorant, you know, stereotypical Bible thumping fundamentalists. I mean, these are people with, with, um, advanced professional degrees. Uh, and I take that as really symptomatic of the crisis of confidence that science faces. I th and I think that, that th these people actually are mirroring something that's happened within science itself. It's not only that people who are outside of establishment science are not, uh, faithful to the scientific method, but science itself is has also lost its connection. You were saying to uh, its rigorous application. I would say really the word to use is its humble application. Mm, yeah. Really what science at its best embodies is humility. It says, I do not know, therefore I shall ask. I shall ask the world through an experiment to tell me what is true and what is not. So when I'm when I'm when I was you know uh, questioning the metaphysical assumptions of science like objectivity, I'm not offering as an alternative that we invent truth that truth is whatever we make of it or anything like that. 
I do think that there is such a thing as a truth that is beyond human beings and beyond human invention, and that our relationship to the world is in large part a discovery of this truth, or even a co-evolution with this truth, which, which is um, kind of a third position between the, the um, you know, beliefs create reality, new age view, and the uh, reality is outside of ourselves, standard scientific view. So there's definitely some philosophical nuance that we could explore there. Uh, but I want to say also, you know, this part of the breakdown of, I guess it's related to the, to this humility that I was speaking of. Um, it, 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 the opposite of humility is arrogance. And like many religions, science has strayed, especially as an institution, from its basic spiritual core into its opposite. Like Christianity was supposed to be about mm -hmm. forgiveness and non-judgment, you know, and look what it became. <laughs> it became about judgment and punishment and you're a sinner, you know, and uh, so, so this happens to institutions that are based on metaphysical principles and that's like a religion and that seek to explain the world like a religion and that tell us how to live in it like a religion and tell us where we came from like a religion and what our destiny is like a religion. I mean, science fulfills all of these uh, box, checks all the boxes for a religion and, and it has departed from its core esoteric spirit, which is humility into arrogance. And one form that that arrogance takes is uh, an institutionalized confirmation bias and paradigm protection, hmm. which, which yeah. an individual scientist might be perfect. In fact, most of them that I meet are perfectly scrupulous people. Uh, they're not on purpose trying to exclude vast realms of truth. But you know, it's, it's, it's how the funding works and how the promotions work and how the publishing works. And if you try to study as a scientist, if you decide you're gonna study uh, UFOs, like, boy, try to get that past your dissertation committee, you know, unless you're taking like some meta, like sociological approach to it. I mean, or if you're gonna try to study herbs as an alternative to remdesivir or to standard pharmaceutical medicines to treat coronavirus, like good luck getting funding for that when the institutions of, of research and, and funding are all driven by pharmaceutical profits. Like you're not going to get funding or much sympathy. Uh, in fact, you'll get the opposite. You'll get hostility and scrutiny if you come up with a study that demonstrates that Artemisia annua is, as many African nations are saying, an effective treatment for COVID-19. Uh, so so it, it, it's this institutional thing. And of course, we also run into actual individual arrogance among scientists. And one form that this arrogance takes is we know how to do it better than anybody else. So you actually touched on a couple of those things like, well, of course, science has helped us um, end famine and vastly increase crop yields. Uh, and most people just take that for granted. But if you actually look at some of the marginalized data, you find that, that um, like there's some of this at the, from the Rodale Institute that demonstrates that if you really do it right, uh, organic methods can outproduce 
uh, conventional chemical intensive methods for many, many, if not most categories of uh, crops. Uh, of course, it's much more labor intensive to do it, quote, do it right. Uh, so in order to grow all of our food sustainably, organically or regeneratively, we'd have to have a lot more people on the land. But, but actually, like the data has been selectively filtered and packaged and, and presented to make it look like technology has delivered us from famine. Uh, and, and I could you know, give similar examples for um, medicine and um, many other. Uh, oh, you mentioned also uh, mutually assured destruction. That's actually a really interesting case because I think what's going on there is a profound uh, initiation for humanity out of the old story in which you could, in which the final solution to your problem uh, was the total destruction of the bad guy. And with, with the atomic bomb, mm -hmm. like starting from the 1950s, that was no longer an option. You, there was no longer any realistic hope of the total vanquishing of your enemy. And that is a new, uh, a new paradigm. It is, a, it is new information that I don't think even to this day, 70 years later, we've really integrated. Like there, there, we have to, and, and it's, it's, it was like the first stirring of a new story in which we are no longer at war with the other and no longer can solve our problems by finding something to kill, finding something to dominate, finding something to lock out, locking out the immigrants, killing the terrorists, killing the germs, wearing masks, washing your hands all the time, isolating so that this bad thing doesn't get you. It's all part of the same mentality that we are emerging from as we understand that so many of our problems do not admit to a a identifiable perpetrator. Like you cannot blame autoimmunity, for example, which is the real epidemic of our time, as far as the number of, I mean, it's just incredible how, how autoimmune conditions have skyrocketed over my, my lifetime. Um, there's not a pathogen there. Uh, you can't reduce poverty to a bad guy. And, and our society is very uncomfortable with any problem where we can't externalize a perpetrator and solve the problem by dominating the perpetrator. Hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's fascinating. I, and I, you touched on that in the conspiracy myth article and, you know, it prompted me to think about um, this that in the absence of a bad guy or, or I guess, you know, puppets, um, you know, is it, more the systems and structures uh, that we are enslaved to. And of course, you know, I think about, you know, capitalism potentially in the forefront of that, um, you know, particularly as it pertains to the institution of journalism, which has a very strong code of ethics traditionally, um, uh, you know, around multiple sources and independent confirmations um, and, you know, reporting 
errors and you know all of the kind of typical ethics associated with journalism but certainly um you know focusing on you know whether it's sort of showing the video of george floyd or a rayshard brooks or you know any other forms of incredibly incendiary um news is driving clicks which is driving kind of cpm based revenue and if you start to kind of dig and dig you know of course our our sources of media are of the private sector largely and um and you know it begs i suppose the question at some point like you know can they be fully entrusted um to deliver you know fact around which we can cohere um you know i i um i also wonder if you, you know you if that the intolerance for conspiracy um almost fuels the conspiracy itself and you know what i i think you know what you talk about and and you're very unique and i really appreciate this about you is that in some ways you're more about facilitating the nuanced conversations around these issues instead of coming at them from a black and white perspective um and i think you know that's if there's anything that we need in our society it is conversation so i'm very i am very grateful for that and and i i do think there is a delineation to be made between the kind of critical thinking that you and skepticism that you're referring to um which is certainly you know um echoed throughout history from you know galileo or any modern philosopher questions thoroughly questions the status quo in order to sort of shift the paradigm forward and we need to be um skeptical and questioning the status quo at the same time i think what we've also seen is a promulgating of ideas with no basis in fact whatsoever you know whether that's pizza gate the birther movement qanon bill gates and you know the implanting of microchips you know covid being engineered in a wuhan lab 5g i mean i you know you can go on and on and i wonder if you if there is any litmus test you use to delineate between ideas that might buck the status quo that are based in some actual real critical thought versus stuff that is just completely specious well that's a great question um yeah first i would say that um all of those things you mentioned well most of them anyway uh, i would ask how do you know that they have no basis in fact like have you actually investigated them not from the point of view of their critics but from the point of view of their adherents have you gone into their original literature uh, most people have not 
So you actually don't know if they have a basis in fact or not. It's because they don't fit your beliefs that you assume that they must not have a basic in, basis in fact, because how could they? Because they're not true. So they must not have a basis in fact. <laughs> yeah, but I would just say, and I'll let you go on on this, but that Pizzagate is not confirmation bias and neither is <laughs> Obama's birth certificate and some of these, I think, other ones that yeah. feel maybe on the thinnest edge of the branch. But, so, so just to but, be clear, okay. I, I think that uh, Barack Obama was born in Hawaii and was legitimacy, legitimately elected president of the United States. Okay, let me just say that uh, yeah. before I say, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know? That's what critical thinking is. Critical thinking is it, it, it goes to the level of how do I know? And, mm-hmm. and, and what are my biases? What am I not looking at? And then it applies that to uh, the ideas that we are engaging. Like, where did that idea come from? Who does it serve? Um, what is not being said with this idea? Like, like one of the reasons that I engage current issues from this sort of meta perspective is that often I think that the way that the issue is framed is part of the problem. Anytime you engage a debate about X versus Y, you are implicitly agreeing that this debate of X versus Y is the right debate to have. But often what I'm seeing today, especially, is that these debates obscure the actual important issues that um, are therefore maintained, the status quo is maintained by the kind of debates that we are having that divert attention away from the deeper issues. So for example, if we argue about, and I, I would love to talk about Pizzagate. I mean, that's a very, very interesting, Boy, there's a lot of things I want to say at once, but I'll, I'll, I'll quickly say <laughs> we've that got plenty of time. So go an ahead. example <laughs> about you know, like these statues. You know, should we topple the statues or leave them up? Uh, maybe change their plaques to give more of a historical context for them, et cetera, et cetera. Like, like okay, like it's not that I don't have an opinion on this, but compared, if you actually want to help, if you actually want to improve the the position of black and brown people on this planet, the number one thing that we've got to be talking about is third world debt. That is what is immiserating hundreds of millions of black and brown people. And I don't see that as even remotely part of the race conversation anywhere. Maybe on a very few far left fringes, there's some talk of that. But it's completely absent because we're all mesmerized by the current spectacle, uh, the show that 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 generates so much smoke and clamor that we never even look at the man behind the curtain, and that's just one example of of like by even entering a debate, what are we implicitly agreeing about? What what do both sides fail to question? What do both sides unconsciously agree on? Same thing in the climate controversy where it's all about is global warming happening or not? Uh, and everyone's arguing about the data and has the data been been adjusted to make it look like more warming, et cetera, et cetera. And meanwhile, we have ecosystem destruction going on that disrupts the physiology of this living organism called Earth that will destroy life on Earth, whether or not temperatures are rising or that CO2 is causing it. But no one is, very few people are actually talking about this crisis, um, which makes it seem that if the global warming people are 
wrong, then it's okay to cut down the Amazon because we're, we're reducing a very complex phenomenon to something simple. So this is, this is you know, one of the tendencies of our society. So um, w w the way that I treat these things, I mean, you, you did ask me a question, like, where do I draw the line? Um, but the first thing I do is I ask, why, how do I know that what I believe is true? And what is it like to be somebody who I uh, disagree with? Like, so I mentioned before the flat earth theory, which basically says that the North Pole is at the center of the earth, it's a disc. And what we call Antarctica is actually a ring of icy mountains around the earth. And that's like the beginning of it. And they have all kinds of things to explain every, every question that you could come up with and, and all kinds of points that you would have trouble explaining to me. Like, why is it possible on Oahu to see uh, things happening on the beach of Maui 70 miles away? I, I just made up those numbers, but but you know, that's the kind of thing like if because it should be under 600 feet of curvature. Like, why can you see them? Do you know the answer to that or do you just assume? So, OK, so like I actually went into this. I read the flat earth hypothesis from its adherence and I'm like, OK, um, is this actually coherent? Like taking it at its best, th that's rare to take an opposing view at its best. Usually we take it at its worst. But I draw from, I can't remember which of the French revolutionaries uh, said that the secret to his debating prowess, I think it might've been uh, Rousseau or somebody, he was an undefeatable debater. And he yeah, said, the reason, so. the reason is that I make sure that I can argue my opponent's position better than he can. So, so this is essential to actually develop critical thinking. And I would say to develop intelligence, it's, it's imperative to step outside of your conceptual framework and beliefs into another one, because that's how our rigid frameworks soften and we become able even to entertain new ideas. So like a lot of these things you mentioned, you know, if you like, if you go into Pizzagate, like I'm not buying into necessarily that a pedophilia elite controls the whole world. I mean, the, the real Pizzagate actually is not about a pizza restaurant. If you go into it, it's a, it, it, it's, it got its name because of these weird emails that showed up in the Podesta WikiLeak yeah. um, that are, you know, it's like we're organizing this fundraiser, you know, in Washington, and we will source our pizzas and hot dogs from the usual source in Chicago. And it's like, what's that doing there? What, is, what are they talking about? And it turns out pizzas are like a code word for underage girls. And like, right. that's how Pizzagate got its name. And like, so you, like there's these weird data points that are, that, are, that are like, it's almost like they're incursions from another reality, from a shadow reality. And that's how I uh, sit with these various conspiracy theories, because you can go as far down the rabbit hole as you want into weirder and weirder territory to the Luciferian elite controlling the planet, to their alien overlords pulling the strings, you know, from like, it, 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 there's no, you know, uh, uh, the earth is flat, satellites are hoaxes, like there's no, there's no clear dividing line. So um, I know you're, you're, you sound like you want to interject. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, my only, my, um, first of all, I think, you know, you make a compelling case for, empathy really um the ability to i think really 
place yourself into someone else's perspective and um and take their argument at its best that's a that's a beautiful and maybe revolutionary thought given the kind of discourse that we are habituated to seeing particularly on the internet um but i i do get quite concerned when there are real world consequences to tolerance such that you know uh, uh, for example you know pizzagate did lead to a man entering a washington pizzeria and firing a rifle or i mean 5g you know that particular theory um led to the destruction of telecommunication towers all over europe even i read i think last night that that in bolivia where 5g doesn't even exist there was such a belief in the fact that covid was being transmitted through 5g technology that they burned down their own telecommunication towers uh-huh. i mean these kind of real world consequences through uh i suppose you know empathy and tolerance are you know need to be taken into account and i would well, say are, are i mean concerned. i would question whether that's coming from empathy and tolerance um but <laughs> but again i would I, yeah. would I would look at okay what are we what are we being shown by um the prevalence of beliefs like uh covid is being spread by 5G. Now, actually, that is the rendition of that theory that is um, offered by its critics. Have you actually looked into the um, what the uh, 5G, let's call them 5G, anti-5G activists are saying about the relationship between 5G and COVID? I don't actually f- buy what they're saying, but it's not yeah, what you're saying. Only in so far that the, I know that there was a paper generated by a physicist, I believe in Florida. I don't remember his name offhand, but that showed, um, you know, a certain reaction of the brain to 5G radio waves. But the critique to that is that it didn't take into account that a human's brain is encased in a skull. <laughs> but but uh, beyond that, I I I will. Um, readily admit, I do not. I am not fluent with the uh, yeah. with the argument, and I probably should be. So, so just to, again to be clear, I do yeah. not think that uh, COVID is caused by five G. However, uh, I do think that five G and and microwave radiation in general is um, more dangerous than we're being told, and. There are voluminous studies of this. I mean, if you are interested in in looking at them, I can send them to you that 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 uh, detail the uh, effects of non-ionizing radiation on biological systems, uh, and you know, study the effect of you know on birds and insects within X distance of uh, cell phone towers, and like I mean, there's and, and plants. You know, I mean, there's just a lot of evidence that is not really allowed into the conversation because it is disruptive to prevailing paradigms. It's disruptive to financial interests. Uh, it's inconvenient. Um, so, so because it is being kept out, there's no way for you or for me to actually know 
what relationship, if any, there is between uh, 5G or, or, I mean, 4G, 3G, whatever, uh, and um, various health conditions, um, or glyphosate is another big one. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so I mean, I, I, I could, I don't want to take the time to, but I could go through some of the um, theoretical reasons, the, the physiological reasons why people suspect some kind of connection between microwave frequencies and um, uh, COVID-19. But, you know, um, I, I won't go th into them now. I'll just say that they're there. Uh, there are scientists, you know, PhD researchers who are writing papers that, and, and publishing them that um, are warning of the dangers of these um, artificial frequencies. And I could have a, a whole conversation about where I agree and disagree and what I think the shortcomings of that worldview are and what I think it's illuminating that we need to pay attention to. I mean, that could be an entire podcast in and of itself. But, but I guess to return to my main point about critical thinking, um, on a broad civilizational level, we desperately need to start questioning some of what we thought we knew as a society, uh, about how to, how to be a society, about what's real, about what's important, about how to run this world. That, yeah. um, because the, the healing um, that we seek is only to be found outside of the worldviews that have created the mess that we're in right now, to paraphrase yeah. Einstein. And we need to start looking toward the uh, indigenous cultures, toward the uh, wisdom lineages within our own cultures toward uh, the the kinds of uh, people uh, that have been excluded, uh, you know, whether, you know, um, racially excluded or ethnically excluded or uh, just the kinds of human abilities that have been demeaned in our current system. You know, you go to school and if you're like me, Everyone's telling you how great you are and how smart you are because why? Because you're good at linear thinking, uh, analysis, reason, and rote memorization. Like I was really good at that. So everybody <laughs> celebrated those and, and I was supported in developing those gifts. But if I had been in school and I had a gift for perceiving human energy fields or making plants grow or communicating with animals or anything like that, either I would have been totally ignored or I would have been pathologized. I want to ask you um, how you think it is possible, or if you think it is possible, to have these kinds of thorough conversations with people with whom we might not agree, um, given that our public forums for the free exchange of ideas among individuals have largely disintegrated. And the way that we tend to communicate with each other is through 280 characters or less. 
um, which are generally characterized as screaming matches in an echo chamber or sort of like private acts happening in public on Twitter or Facebook. Um, how do we have these conversations? I mean, if you believe that the success of humankind is our ability to cooperate flexibly at scale, um, it, it feels like that ability has significantly eroded. Yeah. So I, I wonder if you have any solutions for us. Yeah, I mean that that you know you're really drilling down to uh, something near the root of our crisis today. It's fundamentally a crisis in communication. When we cohere uh, around common meanings and a common story, there's almost nothing that we cannot do as humanity. Our, our collective story tells us who we are and what we're here for, what we're doing, and assigns roles for us to play in making that a reality. I'd like to point this out in, in, in and I'll get you, I'll, I will answer your question, but like when I talk about regenerative agriculture and, and what it would take to um, convert our agricultural system to produce just as much food as right now and sequester 100% of anthropogenic emissions. It would, I made this very, very rough calculation. It would take something like 10% of global military budgets. 10%, and we could have a completely sustainable healing planet. 10%. Not hard, yeah. not technically hard, but impossible <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, yeah. Although COVID-19 is maybe showing us that what we thought was impossible may be within reach because we've right. made such massive changes and it leads us to think what other massive changes could we make? But no changes will happen if, as you're alluding to, uh, our, our um, means of forming a coherent narrative have broken down. And the, the reason, you know, it's not, I don't think it's so much the length of Twitter posts, but it's the intention with which we enter these uh, so-called conversations. If your intention is to win, uh, if you approach it in the through the lens of a debate and your intention is to win and the other side is doing that too, then basically what has become important to you and the God that you are serving is winning and not truth. What we need in order to get out of that stuck holding pattern is to step into service to the truth. And really, when I mentioned humility before as the... Uh, spiritual essence of science. I'm talking about humility here. Humility is uh, devotion to truth above all else. Um, and putting aside, like, like imagine if, if what it takes to change this world is that you have to let go of being proved right and let go of your opponents ever admitting that they were wrong. Are you willing to, to, make that sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice being vindicated? Are you willing, if that's what it takes, to go down in history of being as having been wrong and your opponents were right? Because guess what? You're wrong about something. I don't know what. And same for me. 
I'm wrong, dead wrong about something. And it could be something important, probably more than one thing, maybe even two things. If you ask my wife, maybe three or four. <laughs> so, so what's it going to take for us to, if, if we are oriented toward victory and winning a debate and we enter the debate in that spirit and we marshal our information uh, and, and we select for information that serves winning and select out the information that would be inconvenient and might actually help the opponent uh, and justify that exclusion of something true because after all, we're on the good side. So let's not mm. admit any, you know, say we're anti-Trump, you know, and, and here comes something good that he did. Well, we better not talk about that. Or here comes a yeah. hole in the Russia collusion narrative. Oh, better not let that one in. So this is how, there's no way that we're ever going to enter the kinds of conversations that you're talking about that you really want to see happen and that do produce uh, a, a coherence um, and, and a common narrative that at least incorporates enough of humanity to, for us to move forward. We're never going to have that if we are not in service to something, be, in, to, in service to truth rather than winning. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I suppose being wrong is an essential component of a well-functioning liberal democracy because Charles wins this debate and gets elected and, you know, puts his executes around his platform and some of it works and some of it doesn't. And he gets voted out next time and I win and I get to do it. And then you know you're you're hoping that that there is a uh that you know we're inching forward down the arc of the moral universe um even at even at a bumper to bumper kind yeah. of pace yeah it's, um, it's it's written into our politics i mean every system that we have embodies this uh paradigm of competition and dominance the the, the revolution that we are undergoing goes so deep yeah. Um, kind of the last topic I'd love to just prod at, um, if you'll indulge me, is some of the writing that you did around fear and death. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not um, disconnected from science or empiricism, I, I suppose. Um, because as I've started to think about it, um, kind of the shift from a you know, faith-based society um, in which death was sort of the providence of God on some level, um, where you know Western medicine had not yet, uh, uh, you know, told us all the answers physiologically. Um, that there was a, a sense of um, kind of fatalism and um, around death and a tremendous amount of meaning placed into what happened after death. Um, and kind of with the emergence of, I suppose, the enlightenment and science and empiricism and Western allopathic medicine, you know, death sort of became not no longer the providence of God, but the providence 
of medicine. Like when you die now, it's like generally someone's fault in some way, or it's easy to assign some form of blame. Well, it's a medical and event, even you could say. It's a, death is a medical event. It, yeah. Correct. Yeah. And and in a way, because now we don't see because we understand sort of life and death in these very sort of empirical and physiological terms um, that we ascribe tremendous meaning to this very, very short lifespan um, to the point that we sanctify and treasure it so much <laughs> that we either live in kind of denial or fear of the terminus. And, you know, you talk about this um, kind of much more kind of eloquently than I do. So I, I wonder if you could mm -hmm. spend a little time talking about that. Yeah. Um, so I, th I think that what you said is part of it, that, that when we uh, circumscribe our lives, our identity as, uh, as, you know, beginning at birth and, and ending at death, and that's it. That you know, death is the total annihilation of the self of consciousness. Um, that does make us fear death all the more, and make the prevention of death the uh, most important purpose of life and of medicine, especially. You know, in medicine, death is considered the worst possible outcome. Where so you have you know absurd situations where someone is kept on a respirator, um, suffering horribly alone in a COVID ward somewhere for months before they die, you know, where, and that's considered a better outcome than they died in a day surrounded by their loved ones. Uh, so, so, uh, but I think that another way that we circumscribe ourselves um, that leads to a greater fear of death, it's not uh, just temporal, but it's also um, relational that that who we really are is more than a separate individual, but we are uh, the totality of our relationships and of our connections, and and that there is a, a intimate relationship uh, between my existence and your existence, and and the existence of every being on this earth. Like we're not, we are we are as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, we are interbeings, not separate mm -hmm. individuals. And other cultures held a much more fluid, uh, broader understanding of what it is to be, uh, what it is to be a self. You couldn't even, in many languages, there was no word for exist. Uh, and if you ask somebody to picture yourself just existing, that would have been nonsense. Or they would have maybe pictured themselves with their families or with their tribes. Existence wasn't something that a separate self does. So when we, when we have narrowed who we are to this discrete, separate individual, then of course we're afraid, more afraid of death. Uh, but when we, when we pour our beingness into the world and, and, and understand that everything that we've given toward life and beauty uh, outlives us and sends ripples out into the future, then the fear of death subsides just as it subsides when we understand that this lifetime that we can measure is only part of a greater existence. Uh, and these two ideas are actually related. You know, what exactly is it that survives? And who are you anyway? 
um, mm. that, that gets at some of these more mysterious questions. But, but yeah, like our society is so geared around preventing death and maintaining, and that would be the ultimate v victory of science. You know, that's where it's going yeah. uh, to, to conquer death itself. That's the ultimate frontier and, and the greatest ambition. And, you know, to, through genetic engineering and nanotechnology and, uh, you know, uploading our consciousness into computers and so forth, like that we can uh, conquer death is, is um, that's the ultimate expression of the scientific program. Uh, and so that's, you know, today we see that written into our response to COVID-19, where prolonging life or postponing death at any cost outweighs many other human values that other cultures may have put before uh, postponing death as long as possible. So, so you know, who's to say that that uh, it's worth it uh, to no longer have gatherings and dances and <clears throat> group hugs and weddings and carnivals and concerts and all the things that we used to do that we've sacrificed on the altar of safety. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that you know, individual freedom or uh, dances and gatherings and so forth are of overriding importance either. What I'm saying is that we have conflicting values here that, mm -hmm. that invite us into a complicated, into a nuanced conversation, as you would say. Um, but our society has taken one uh, uh, as the trump card, as the overridingly important we have to keep safe. And and what how, what is your life like if your first priority is to make sure that you are as safe as possible? That's no yeah. life. Yeah, I mean, if you could imagine sort of not even immortality, but sort of amortality, where essentially every organ in your body could be replaced or regenerated every 10 years. Um, but you could still get, you know, hit by a bus right. and, and, and die if you kind of play this thought experiment out with me. Um, can you imagine what that would be like? The risk that you would take to, uh, well, to risk your amortality I mean, you'd never go outside, right? right? If you're like, well, wait a minute, like I can live forever or I might get hit by this bus, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, Yuval Harari wrote a pretty interesting book called Homo Deus, um, which kind of talks about this at, at some great length that, you know, the, the final conquest after kind of defeating famine, disease and, and war is immortality um and all of the ways that we are kind of going about doing that and you know i'm kind of close to it in the longevity movement um and which in some ways is sort of maybe just a pit stop on, on the way to <laughs> an immortality amortality movement yeah um you know but all of the you know trinkets and devices and heart rate variability monitors and glucose monitors and aura rings and you know um that that are you know being developed kind of in the name of longevity as if longevity 
is is the holder of all mm -hmm. of of the value. Jeff, can um, I say two things about longevity here? Yeah, please. Um, one is, however long you live, when you're in your last minute, it won't matter. All you'll have is that minute. Secondly, <clears throat> secondly, uh, there is a wisdom, a body wisdom in the lifespans that we currently have uh, that and, and other animals too. Like there's a reason why dogs live 10 or 15 years and why humans live, you know, 80 years. Uh, and it is, that's what it takes to live a full life. Every experience that a dog is supposed to have to live a full dog's life, you don't really need more than 10, 15 years. And at our current stage of evolution, um, a full human life is accomplished in all of its stages and all of its transformations and challenges in about 80 years from you know, your childhood, your first love, you know, your, your initiation to manhood, et cetera, et cetera, your family, your career, you know, your, your period of struggle, your period of, of, uh, building on what you've and, and, and harvesting the fruits of, of what you've sown, you know, your grand becoming a grandparent, you know, and maybe ending with your, your grandson's child on your knee. Like that is a full life. And there are many variants on it, of course. I don't want to uh, normalize that particular variant, but basically you get your full complement of the human experience in about 80 years. And that is why none of these technologies are actually going to work very well and might even cause um, more harm than good. And I think, you know, we're starting to get an inkling of this when we look at, uh, uh, you know, what happens when you enhance telomerase? Uh, you know, yeah, like your telomeres don't shorten as fast, but you get cancer, you know? Like there is um, a, a, a glass ceiling, a limit to how well these longevity technologies are going to work as long as we are living the kinds of lifespans that we are living today. And our longevity will only dramatically increase when the basic trajectory of a human life changes. And that is why those who have accomplished extraordinary longevity, uh, the ones I know about are the Taoist sages, you know, who have lifespans of hundreds of years, they can only do that by really leaving society. They have to exit the, the matrix and the consensus reality and the life path that most people are on. Otherwise, they don't need to live that long. Like, what's the point? Why do we want to have super long lives if we think that our existence ceases at the moment of death. Thank you for listening to this week's episode with thinker and author Charles Eisenstein. You can find his recent essays on his website, charleseisenstein.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for me, please feel free to email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. I try to respond to every message. And that's it from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. Mm -hmm.